Good morning, good morning. Good morning. Just making sure the mic works and my voice works. Amen. Amen. All right. So my name is Daniel and I have the opportunity of bringing God's word to you this morning. Um, it's a privilege um, to break open God's word. Uh, if you are here and you do not have a Bible, if you would raise your hands, please, if you need a Bible. All right. All solid Christians with Bibles. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, if perchance you're in the Pew Bible, it's on page 820. Um, and if you uh, would stand with me as we read God's Word, we are going to be coming out of the book of Matthew, the Gospel. According to Matthew, uh, we'll be in chapter 14. And we'll be reading from 22 to 33, Matthew 14, 22 to 33. Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 14, verse 22 to 33. Matthew 14, 22 to 33. He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, bitten, beaten by waves, for the wind was against him. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, saying, uh, walking on the water, um, came to them at the fourth watch, walking on the sea. But the disciples saw him walking on the sea, and they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said to him, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, if it's you, Lord, you save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we uh, look up to you as Christ has done so many times, to pray for your blessing this hour. We are limited humans who are attempting to understand eternal truths, truths that transcend our understanding, but by your Spirit, we know you can make us understand. So, Father, we come to you this morning asking that the speaker, the hearers, will all be submitted to your will. 
that your spirit would have your sway in this place, that you would be Lord, not just over our lives, but even particularly over this hour, that nothing would be said without your permission, that all things will be done to glorify you, that we will humbly submit to the weight and heaviness of your word, and that you will purify us, those who are yours, you would draw nearer and closer to you, Those who are yet to know you, you will begin now, God, to work in hearts that at the end of this sermon, that perhaps they will come to know you. We pray, God, that you would manifest yourself, that your glory will be seen, that we may echo the very words of the disciples, that truly you are the Son of God. Speak to us, Lord. We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It's my understanding that this is part one of a two-part series on the questions that Jesus asked or questions from Christ. The question that I am being asked to deal with this morning is a question that Christ poses to Peter. Christ says to Peter, why did you doubt? If you've been in the faith long enough, you have experienced no doubt, some doubt. You have had moments of doubting yourself. In a world that we live in, um, it's easy to doubt people. People betray our trust from time to time. After having a son in the last couple of weeks, I have spent so much time researching vaccines. I have been on the Internet for days and hours trying to figure out what they're trying to put in my son. And things that I found out have made me doubt the very medical system that we are meant to trust. Perhaps you doubt the social political system. You see presidents that are in the house that you don't necessarily agree with, people who get into office you don't agree with. Whatever the doubt is, you and I as human beings have experienced doubt. Perhaps the most troubling doubt of all is a religious doubt. It's a spiritual doubt. When you doubt the very maker of your being, when God is the object of your doubt, when you doubt who he is and in turn doubt who you are, when there's a doubt that penetrates the core of who you are so much so that your life is a sustained identity crisis. You don't know who you are because you don't know who God is. Doubt is commonplace for us. And if you live long enough, you will live to doubt your own existence. There's different types of doubt. And as I said, perhaps the worst of all is the spiritual doubt. When the very nature, the very attributes of God, the very person of God is doubted. And so in this text, we're going to deal with that question, but we're going to deal with the text as a whole. So we find a question here that Christ poses to Peter. Christ asks him, why did you doubt? And perhaps it's helpful to lay a little context for this passage. In the very first, uh, in the 22nd verse of this chapter, we are introduced to a term that Matthew rarely uses immediately. If you've ever done textual criticism, you understand Mark uses immediately quite often. It's as though Mark has some kind of spiritual ADD where he's pushing forward and moving forward and say immediately, immediately. Mark uses it at least 36 times. Matthew about 12 times. Luke about 13. John three times. John was, was very calm. John was relaxed. He had a purpose. Matthew uses this term immediately. And if you're a student of the Bible, you have to be asking, why so sudden? What is the urgency that we are meant to understand in this passage? 
And so the context is clear that immediately before this, Christ did the greatest thing that he had done up until this point in terms of magnitude. He feeds 5,000 people. It's interesting to note that the text says 5,000 people, not including women and children. And so if you're doing some rough math, you might have 15,000, 20,000. If you're attributing at least one child to each family, if you multiply that times three, you got at least 15,000. He feeds 15,000. What could arguably be, arguably be called the biggest fish fry in all of Nazareth. He feeds them, and you see a glimpse at his divine provision. And on the cusp of that, on the heel of that, Matthew introduces us that immediately... He made the disciples get into the boat and go with him and go before him to the other side. And then in the same sense, he is dismissing the crowds as well. I give you two reasons. I think scripture gives us, sorry, three reasons why. The first reason we can see in the text in verse 23, it says here, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he did what? He went to the mountain by himself to pray. This was a sort of glimpse as Christ's divine pleasure. It was his pleasure to spend time with the Father. Like many of us, unlike many of us, once we have had such a great mountaintop experience, some of us want to camp out and capitalize on this new equity. It's time to sort of massively engage the people and capitalize on what you just, you just fed 15,000. What would happen if ARC fed 15,000 people? The church would be packed. But I'm not sure that's the type of people we're looking for. First reason is that he withdrew to pray. Luke tells us in his gospel that this was normative for Christ. Christ often re removed himself from people, withdrew from people to pray. I wish it was said about God's people that that was our M.O. That we would often re withdraw from the crowd, from the fame and the fanfare. It's easy to withdraw when there's crisis, but it's harder to withdraw when things are good. Those mountaintop experiences have a way of making you ill-prepared for the valleys. I remember walking with Pastor T a couple months ago. We were coming down the escalator, and I was talking to him about a mountaintop experience. And we were, we, he was asking me how a conference that we were was going. And I said to him, I said, I, I love it. It's great to be around men of God and pastors who are intimately engaged in the word and love the word. And as someone who aspires to ministry, it's good to see that, to sort of pull back the veil and show me what's going on. But I said to him, I said, I'm concerned that this is not just going to be a mountaintop experience for me. That when I go home, I forget the joy and the bliss of being in God's people's presence. And he said something to me, you know, Pastor T, when he goes, hmm. You know, something, some wisdom is coming. He nods to, to show you that he acknowledges you, but you know that what you just said deserves a deep answer, and he's going to give it to you. And he said to me that there was an author, and, and I might be getting this wrong, but that the author wrote a book, and the author was writing in regards to the shepherds in the field when Christ came, and they heard the heralding of Christ um, as Savior. And that there's a little part of that text when we read it. Yes, they're rejoicing. Yes, they're happy. Yes, they're exalting. Yes, the Son of God is born. And then it says, and then they went home. Climax, mountaintop, and then they went home. In other words, those mountaintop experiences are meant to prepare you for the valleys. If you idolize the mountaintop experience, 
you will not be prepared for the valley. Leads us to our second reason. Jesus, now for, for, for sort of this answer, we have to look at John. John chapter 6 gives us some insight into this. John says that Christ, perceiving that they were the crowd, wanted to take him by force and make him king, he withdrew. So the first thing he did was because of prayer, his divine pleasure in the Lord. But another thing he did was this was against his divine purpose. He withdrew because they were getting ready to make him king. Now, you may say, well, isn't that why he came? Didn't he come to be the Messiah, to be the king? This is a wonderful way to, to bypass the cross and the agony and the pain. Brethren, whatever your opportunity that presents itself to you is, whatever, however good it looks, if it's not in line with God's will, it's not a good opportunity. Doesn't matter if they want to make you king, doesn't matter if they want to give you a great high position. If it is against God's purpose for your life, God's declared purpose in his word, it's not a good opportunity. It might as well be coming from Satan. And so he, he withdrew from the crowd because their intentions were not pure. I heard one pastor say it this way. They wanted a burger king, but he wanted to be their sovereign king. They wanted him to continue to feed them. They love. It's interesting to know when you look at the parallel verse in Math and Mark that he had been teaching them and teaching them, giving them spiritual food. They didn't want to make him king then. But when he brought out five loaves and transformed them into feeding 5,000, they had a welfare king that they wanted to crown. Isn't it interesting that sometimes we mistake that people want the benefits of God with wanting God? It's Thomas Aquinas who says that never mistake the benefits of God, that people desiring to be close to the benefits of God as them wanting to be close to God himself. And I suspect that some of us, when we think of evangelism, this is a wonderful evangelistic opportunity. We've got 15,000 people that are ready to hear from you, ready to crown you king, ready to make you who you say you are. But they didn't want the type of king he is. They wanted a social political king. They wanted a Messiah that they can control, not a Messiah that can control them. So he withdrew, second reason, because the people's purpose didn't line with his divine purpose. Third reason, I believe, you see sort of Christ's divine preservation of his people. He takes the disciples, immediately, urgently, pushes them on the boat. The, the, the term here that Matthew uses, he says, he made the disciples. He compelled them. It alludes to the fact that the disciples weren't willing to go. Yeah, they wanted to camp out. You don't understand, Jesus. We've been walking with you for two and, year, two and a half years or so. We have been ridiculed for your behalf. Now we got 15,000 people who are ready for us to start a mega church, and now you want to run? Let's camp out. Let's sit here. Let's enjoy this mountaintop experience as long as we can. He preserves his people. By removing them from the influence of the crowd. Pushes them on the boat. Casts them to the sea. And they're in turbulence. And I, I suspect that even the very storm that the disciples thought was hindering them from getting to where God told them to. Was the very method and motive that Christ used to stop them from being influenced by the world. Isn't it funny how our very trials and tribulations we perceive as stopping us from getting to where God wants us, but it's that very trial and tribulation that puts you in the center of God's will? 
they were troubled in the storm. Chaos was going. And the very storm is what God used to preserve them. This is Christ's divine preservation. So those three reasons. He withdrew because he wanted to spend time with his father. He withdrew because he didn't have the same purpose in mind as they did. And he withdrew because he preserved his disciples. Christ is fond of his disciples. He loves them. Let's look at Matthew 24, verse 24. It's evening. He's alone. Matthew continues to remind us, lest we forget what this is. He says in 23, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself. Lest we forget, he said when evening came, he was there alone. I believe Matthew is letting us know here that when he said go to the disciples, yeah, they got in. He made them. But the crowd lingered. You ever have some times where you say to people, you don't have to go home, but you have to get out of here? And, and, and there's a sense where after you say that a few times, if they don't leave, then you leave. And there's a sense where his divine pleasure with the father, his time with the father was so important that he would not be derailed. Are we willing to lose things for the sake of spending time with the Lord? Are we willing to withdraw from things that are supposedly going to bless us for the sake of spending time with the Lord? It's a great teaching here from God. In verse 24, it opens up and it says, But the boat at this time had been long away from the land, and they had been beaten back and forth by waves. The waves were against them. They were in a storm. This is not the first time the disciples have been in a storm. In Matthew chapter 8, we read that they were in a storm. And the difference between this and then is that at that time, Christ was in the boat with them. He was with them in the ship as they were going through the storm. Side note, it always troubles me how they speak to Christ sometimes. I think sometimes familiarity does breed contempt. That They were screaming and saying, don't you see that we're perishing in Matthew chapter 8? And there's a sense Christ is so calm and cool and walks up and says to the the sea and the storm, peace, be still, and sits back down. It's interesting that they weren't afraid at the storm. They were afraid at the fact that Christ could stop the storm. It says in that text, it says that, and they looked at each other and said, what type of man is this? I like the way the King James says it. What manner of man is this? What sort of human or non-human is this that the very elements obey him? In this text as well, when you begin to look at it, it says at verse 24, it says at the fourth watch of the night, he came walking on the sea. Look at verse 26. But the disciples saw him walking on the sea. And what happened? They were terrified. Storm ain't terrified The rock and boast didn't terrify them. The sight of Christ expressing his divine power terrified them. Because at night, the fourth watch, three, between 3 and 6 a.m., if you see something walking on the sea towards you in a storm, okay. (laughs) It's easy to look at these texts sometimes and be like, oh, come on, that was Jesus. Come on, everybody know that. At 3 a.m. I just want to point this out. I don't want to draw it out too long. At 3 a.m., there is somebody that looked like a human walking on water that can't be, that, that can't be walked on. 
at 3 a.m. And, and you know, you know, at nighttime, if you've ever gone nighttime, you know there's the shimmering and there's glistening and, and, and any, anything that moves gets your attention at night. And, 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 and at 3 a.m., he's walking towards them. I, I guarantee I would be terrified as well. There's a terror in them. They weren't terrified so much at the storm. They were terrified at the person who controls the storm. That what is he? Who is he? What can it be? In fact, I think I saw a ghost. A phantom. And, and, and maybe in the backdrop is the sort of Jewish understanding that demons and spirits uh, uh, sort of come out at night. Um, and that they, they have been known um, to sort of steal people and take sailors and kill. Maybe that's in the background. But, but, but beyond looking at the extraordinary sort of explanation for this, the fact that a human being is walking towards you in the middle of the night does evoke terror. And when you get to, it's, it's as though in certain areas, Christ pulls back the veil and shows some of himself. And every time he does that, the very appearance of his divine power evokes fear and terror. I think it was Pastor Matt that gave probably one of the best sermons I've heard to date on fear, on the fear of God. And how sometimes we get so cute with that term fear and we start to say it means reverence. It simply just means to reverence. And, and there's a sense where it does mean that. But I think we do that because we don't want the people to be so afraid of God that they don't come near him. Is that, is that fair to say? But there's a holy fear that you must have that the king of the universe is in your presence. And better yet, that you are in the presence of greatness. His divine power to control the elements is displayed. And in his display of that, the disciples were in terror. They were filled with trembling. And Jesus, one to always love his people, displays divine protection. Immediately, the Bible says, look here in verse 27, but immediately, second time you're going to see that term in this passage, but immediately, what you will notice is that every time immediately is used in this passage, it's in protection of his disciples. He is speeded to move for the sake of his people. Immediately, Jesus said what? Spoke to them. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Mark gives us some insight here. In a parallel verse, Mark says he was about to go past them. He was on the mountaintop praying. He saw them fussing. Let me go on to the other side and wait for these fools. He was about to go past them. And Mark says because he saw that they saw him and they got scared, he come in and says, it is I. Don't be afraid. It's interesting how his very words to them are the same words that calm storms. I can only imagine that this is not a suggestion from Christ that please take courage, but that the very command in the in imperative form is you can by me take courage. Do so. There's a command here. It's not a suggestion. It's not a cavalier saying that uh, please take courage. My presence in the storm is enough for you to focus on nothing else but me. Amen. And he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. You know, Peter gets a lot of bad rap. And often he is the racist, right? The, the ethnocentric Peter. 
who wouldn't sit with, beside um, uh, Je- uh, Jew- Gentiles when Jews are around. He's the attempted murderer, slashing up people's ears, right? Make no mistake, he wasn't aiming for the ear, right? He's, he's the one that, that denies the Lord three times. And, and there's a sense where if you read this text with that bias, you might walk around and just assume Peter's being here, just same old Peter, always trying to jump in when it's not his time to jump in, always trying to fit in. But we just laid the context that there is a man walking on water in the middle of the night. Listen, I don't care if it's my father and I know you. If you're walking on water in the middle of the night, I'm not asking you for me to come near. You good over there. I'm good over here. If you need to see me, you're the one that can walk on water. Come on over here. Why do I need to jump out there? But look what, look what Peter says. Look what Peter says. Peter says, Peter answered and says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, I I, I struggle with whether or not I should do this or not, but I think it's important because it's in the text. When Christ says here, it is I, he uses a term that really should be translated and can be translated as I am. The reason I bring this up is that Matthew is writing to Jewish people. His audience is Jewish. The people who are experiencing this are what? Jewish. There is no way it's lost on them that this is the Old Testament covenantal name of God. There's no way that it's lost that he's on water, controlling the elements. There's a bit of a theophany going on, an appearance of God here. I'm in the presence of godliness, and he says, I am. I can't walk past that and not assume that that evokes even more terror. That the God of the universe, who made heaven and earth, who made you, the storms, the boat, the wind, the waves stands before you and unveils some of his divine power, some of his divine presence before you. It's interesting that Peter's the only one talking. I feel like the rest of the disciples in the corner like, if you want to go out there, fine. But he never lets the fear of God overshadow the love of God. There has to be a holy fear of God. But not so much to keep us away from him, but to cherish even much more when we are with him. That that God who can disintegrate us in seconds calls us, come. Peter gets a bad rap. But this is faith, y'all. This is faith beyond what I have. Some days it's difficult to trust God with my normal circumstances. Maybe I'm alone. Oh, but maybe you can, you can relate to that. But you're trusting God in things that are way beyond your control. No one ever assumes they can control nature. You play games with it. But Mother Nature, as they call it, she, she, she can hold her own. Better yet, Father Nature, because it's God, right? God can hold his own. He controls the elements. That's enough for conversation. Peter shows faith. Peter says, if it is you, command me. It's interesting that he says, if it's you, tell me, come here. He says, command me. 
when you see this, the if, if you read this as a conditional clause in the sense that if and then, like if it's you, like I'm doubting whether or not you're the Lord, you, you would be wrong a little bit, and I'll tell you why. This is what we call a first-class clause, right? It's a conditional clause that is better sometimes translated as since. Here's what I'm saying. It's the same thing that we see in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, where the devil says to Christ, if you are the Son of God, do this, do that. Well, there's no doubt that the devil knew that Christ was the Son of God. This was not a conditional clause in the sense of, if you are, I'm not sure, but it's that since you say you are, I'm assuming you are until proven different. This is not an act of doubt. This is an act of saying, based on my assumption that I heard your voice, my sheep hear my voice and they come, where I heard your voice and I heard you say it is I, and I can see that, I can express it, I can experience that, I'm walking out. Because the context bears witness to that. Why would you walk out on something that you don't think is true? And there's a sense where in him, command, in him saying to the Lord, command me to come. It's sort of like what Augustine says, uh, that God, that whatever God commands of us, God is the one that can provide it. In, in other words, and I don't want to get into all the, all the fullness of that, but, but Peter here is showing that, hey, it's you. And I know that if you command me to come, it's not a matter of me trying to walk on water. You will make me walk on water. That in in your, in your vocal cords as a divine being is authority. You know, it's often said that there's a reason why Christ, when he went to Lazarus' grave, called Lazarus specifically by name and didn't just say, come out. And, and, and I don't see that in the text per se. Like, it's sort of an argument from silence. But wind, nature itself obeys his voice. And I guarantee if he said, come out, all things will come out. It's, a, it's in his power. It's within his realm. And so he says here, if you command me, because it is you, since it is you, command me to come out, and your very command enables me to do the very impossible thing that I can't do. Whatever God ordains, he sustains. And so Peter knows that. Peter, again, is showing us faith. So before we get to where he shows little faith, Let's experience the fact that like him, we vacillate in our faith. We vacillate in our doubts. There are times when we are on fire for the Lord and Holy Ghost filled and all those wonderful things. And there are days that we are cold as ice. Peter is a good example of that for us. Peter says, if you would, if you command me, I will come to you on the water. And Christ says to him, come. So Peter got out. Notice there's no pause here for Peter to think. Peter got out on the command. He shows again obedience and faithfulness. He gets out of the boat and began to walk on water. Matthew tells us this. Matthew didn't say he got out and fell. He got out and began to walk. For a brief moment of time, there were at least two men in history who walked on water. One was sustained by another. The other sustained himself. Christ walked and commanded him to walk what he do what he did we can do in him so far as he commands it it's interesting commands it peter walks peter begins to to walk on water and i don't know and maybe i can use some sanctified imagination here 
perhaps at some point he started to get a little a little excited. And you're like, I'm walking on water. Walking on water. Hey, you know, walking on water. It's awesome. Like, this is cool. Maybe he looked back at the disciple like, you want to do this? Oh, I, I'm not, I, I'm, but, but, but there's a sense where he's getting now distracted. And you see in the text here, it says here in verse 30, he says, but when Peter saw the wind, it's interesting that Matthew says saw the wind was always there. Wind never stopped. We don't read anywhere in here that the wind at some point ceased. He, he, he's walking. The wind is there blowing, doing what it does. But he had watched and looked at the Lord. It, we sang a song this morning that talks about how the distraction of the world goes away when you focus on Christ. He, he, he looks at Christ. And at some point, his gaze went to the wind. He took his eyes off Christ. But watch this. Jesus, verse 31, immediately, third time we see it, what did he do? He immediately reached out and took hold of him. You may take your eyes off of Christ, but he never takes his eyes off of you. It's great that as sheep, we are prone to stray. That's what we do. It's in our very nature. But bless God that we have a good shepherd that never strays. That if our eyes shift off of him through the storms of life, he is steady in the storm, fixing his gaze on us. It's wonderful that his watchful eye is ever. And look, look what happened. Immediately he did what? Reached out. I don't know if that means Matthew was telling us that Peter was so close to the Lord that he had walked some distance. Or maybe that's just the speediness of the Lord. Because if you can walk a water, coming to me immediately is not a problem. I mean, that's the least of your worries, right? You just walked on H2O. So immediately coming to my rescue and reaching out. And notice what he says here. Notice what he didn't say. Immediately Christ reached out and Peter took a hold of Christ. Watch what happened. He reached out and took a hold. I think this is a great picture of the monogistic work of God. The one-way salvific work of God. That God does not come and partner with us to pull us out of sinking water. But he reaches into the miry clay, into the dust, and pulls you out. God does that. He takes a hold. It's like a child who is walking with his father. And he's got a hold of his father's hand. But really the father's got a hold of him. Immediately, he comes to the rescue of his servant. Three times we've seen that, that in the text. Usually Matthew doesn't use that, but each time he uses it, immediately he preserves the, the, the disciples. Immediately he protects the disciples. Immediately he comes here to rescue Peter. Here's another thing. Right here, you might be able to camp out and say, Peter's showing little faith. What did Peter do when he fell? Hmm? Get depressed? Feel bad for himself? What did he do? cried out. You, are you going to cry out to a person that you think can't save you? Do you not have to exercise some faith in the person that he has the ability and the willingness to save you? Because folks might have the ability to help, but do they have the willingness to help? Here you see his benevolence and his sovereignty and his providence, his, his divine omnipotence operating together. I love that, right? And he takes a hold of him, pulls him out. But Peter cried. He cried out and says, Lord, save me. Not Lord, if you can. If you're not too busy with controlling the elements, stop on by and help me. He cries out. Children are prone to going to those who they know can help them. 
when they are hurt, they will cry. Right now, my son does that for my wife. Makes me feel bad a little bit. But that's fine. He, he'll know that his daddy is good later on. But, but, but they cry and go to the person that they know can save them. They know that he has the power and he has the preference for them. They know he cares for them and he says, Lord, save me. Another exercise of faith. So quite frankly, Peter's lack of faith can only be seen between verse 29 and verse 30. It's a little faith. It's interesting that Christ doesn't say, oh, ye of no faith. He said that before. And here he is using singular form to speak directly only to Peter. You have faith. I need it to grow, though, but you have faith. You have enough faith to come out on the sea, to trust that I am who I say I am, to know that my very command not only encourages you out, but enables you when you're out. You know that much. You stood, you walked. All you had to do was keep looking at me. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, Peter. That's all you had to do. So you have faith. Unlike the rest who just sat there, they weren't going to exercise anything. Peter shows his faith. Peter walks out, falls, and even in his sinking, in his drowning, he calls out for help. Lord, save me. That's faith. I want to say something about Christ's tone here. Given all that I've shared with you, it's easy for me to be able to say this, and I hope you would accept it. Christ's tone here is not one of disappointment. First of all, the sovereign God of the universe who knows all things can never be disappointed. Disappointment assumes that you are ignorant of the future. It assumes ignorance. It doesn't assume omniscience. If you're omniscient and you know all things, how can you be disappointed? Right? Fair? That's one reason. Another reason is that you see him immediately come into their aid. I believe this is more of an encouragement than a disappointment. This is more of a commendation than a condemnation. This is saying you do have faith. And I think he has the right to say that given all who he is. Given the divine provision that you've seen in this same chapter of me providing for 15,000 people, you know I can do it. Given the display of my divine power to control the elements and also to control you, your very walk, your talk, the way you were able to step on, on water and fill solid ground. Given all that, Peter, you have no room to doubt. That's Peter. For us, we now have the benefit of all this. We have the benefit of seeing from a high level the divine provision, the divine pleasures that we share in Christ to be able to commune with God. We have the high view of being able to see his divine power. And we're looking at this and we're saying, man, he's God. They're still trying to figure out. We have all this benefit before us. Where then is the room for doubt? doesn't mean you can't doubt. Many of us may have been part of communities that made you feel like your questions and your doubts were not important or that you can't have them. seems like almost every year I hear of some Christian rapper or some Christian minister who says, I used to believe this, but I don't believe it anymore. And when you ask them, it's usually because I had doubts that were never answered. I was told to be fake. I was made to feel like I couldn't share my doubts. Well, bless God that we're in a church where your doubts are welcome. And we want to deal with them. Doubts are not the problem. It's what you do with them. And so we see here, we see, we see Peter showing us, yeah, you, you can vacillate in your doubt. 
And you can, you can move up and flow. You can ebb and flow in your doubt. But when it comes to it, when you look at his provisions that he's given you, the greatest provision of all, the son of the living God given for your ransom. When you look at his display of provisions in your life in all other ways and the power that he has to control the elements, to control yours and my heart, especially us who are saved, to know that your heart used to be worse than what it was. It took an act of God to do it. That alone is a way to preach to yourself and say, why am I doubting? Oftentimes we spend time listening to ourselves and talking to ourselves. We spend time listening and hearing the echoes of our heart. Man, I don't know that. I don't believe that. I might not trust that. Have you ever spoken back to yourself? Have you ever ministered back to yourself and preached to yourself? If you haven't, it's a great thing. Because you can, you can argue with other preachers, but you can't argue with yourself. No, because when a preacher is preaching to you and telling you things that you need to do, there's a sense to say, well, he don't know my story. He doesn't know what I've been through. Who knows your story better than you? So when you preach to yourself... How are you going to tell yourself to be quiet? Well, Daniel, you didn't know what Daniel did last. I was there. There's a sense where, 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 where we are encouraged by this text to look at this passage and say, where is, this, where is the ground for our doubt? Why? What, what, is the, what is the purpose of your doubt except to give you a, a headache and perhaps uh, uh, indigestion or anything like that, right? Doubt is, is, is sort of the cousin of worry. That's usually where worry comes from. And if you doubt long enough, you begin to worry. And everything is up for discussion. But there's some things that need to be solid, like the very nature of God. The very attributes of God. The incommunicable attributes of God. His omniscience. His omnipotence. His omnibenevolence that he loves you more than anyone else and better than you love yourself. We are reminded in this text, as Christ reminds Peter, that you don't need a doubt. Yes, you have faith, enough to be here, enough to say that you're a Christian, enough to walk on water, Peter, enough to come out of the boat when I command you. But that's not where faith stops. Faith is a muscle that must be exercised, must continue to grow, and has to grow. And the only way faith grows that I've ever seen, and, and there are men in here who have been preaching longer than I have, the only way I see that faith grows is through trials. I don't see it any other way. Faith grows when it's tested, when it's stretched, when it's shown that it's inadequate and insufficient, and then you have to say, like Paul, who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is God is. So trust in him. Christ responds and says, oh, you little faith, to encourage Peter and to encourage us that he is worthy of our trust, that he is worthy of our worship even. It's interesting that you can't doubt God while you're worshiping him. Verse 32, and when they, him and Peter, get back on the boat, the wind ceased. Two words. Wind ceased. You sneeze, you might go past it. The wind stopped. I've been sort of saying this all along, but you kind of get a more of a glimpse that Christ used that wind, that storm, for this very purpose. To declare who he is and to declare who we're not. To show his disciples that he is God. 
because they do that later on. They, they call him the son of God, which we'll get to later. But he does this. And, and, and it, it's very interesting that the wind stopped immediately as soon as they got in. Ceased. It's as though Christ says to the wind, all good, you're done. Your job is done. You, you reveal. And, and I can say that with confidence because here's my philosophy. If I can attribute to anything that happens in my life, any good godly purpose as a limited human being in my understanding, then God who is not limited as, a, as at least thought of that much. Does that make sense? If, if I can attribute, perhaps I get robbed. And in my being robbed, I share the gospel with the robber. And he comes to faith in Christ. I can at least say, maybe that's not the only reason God used it, but God at least used it for that reason. Because the omnipotent God doesn't miscalculate. There's no mathematical design that God is trying to figure out, like, like our friends who talk about open theism. God isn't trying to figure out what happens. So not only does he control the winds, but he orchestrates the winds. Maybe this is too much of an application. If there's a storm in your life, it's not a time to doubt. It's a time to probably ask God, what are you teaching me? It's probably the time to stop and pause and say something isn't right. And I, I think it was, I forget it was C.S. Lewis that says, God screams to us in these trials. And so a storm is not time to mope. Quite frankly, that's the opposite of what you're supposed to do. I'm not asking you to fake the funk. I'm not asking you to act like nothing's happening. I am asking you to take it to the only person that can fix it. God. Because here's the thing about worry and doubt. If you continue in it without attacking in it, it gets worse. It is one of the laws of thermodynamics that says matter doesn't get better with time. It gets worse with time. Translation, humans, all of us, don't get better with time, you get worse. But if you introduce to that something beyond, something extra human, something extraordinary like God, we are being sanctified daily. The new man is being groomed daily. The old man is dying daily. The inner man is being renewed. The outer man is perishing. So in Christ, thermodynamics doesn't work. The longer you are in Christ, the more refined you're becoming. Peter can walk away from this. Uh, and, and he doesn't speak anymore in this passage. You notice that? Peter who, who talks, impetuous Peter, no longer speaks in this passage. It's as though what Christ did made him think deeply about who he was. Here's what we find out. We see here in the, in the text, he says, and those, in, in other words, is distinguishing. In verse 32, he says, they, Peter and Jesus, get back in the boat. The wind ceased. He's now distinguishing between Christ and Peter. And he says, they who were in the boat, you know, the ones who were mute up until this point, the ones who, who, who knew how to respond to a ghost, <laughs> rightly, um, they now speak when they see the divine person of Christ. And what, what, what happens when they speak? And those who are in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Very first time that they make this declaration in all of the book of Matthew. They've been walking with him for two and a half years. It took them two and a half years of intimate fellowship with Christ before they could see that he was the son of God. I have a little more grace for us. We're not seeing him face to face. And sometimes we vacillate. Those who saw him face to face vacillated. 
because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They were face to face with the Lord of all creation, and that doubt still creeped into their soul. So if you doubt, feel the blessed assurance of God that you are still his. If you are his. If you're not, your doubt will only increase. If you don't know him as Lord and Savior, it will only get worse. There's no hope except in him. They call him the son of God. Now, some people will say, well, at this point, we don't necessarily expect that they know what they were saying. You saw a phantom. You saw a man walking on water. (laughs) You saw him reveal to you who he was. They knew what they were saying. He was the son of God. First of all, Jewish men would not be worshiping anything other than God. Number one. These are men who grew up on the Torah, who understood the word of God, who understood the Shema, that God is one, that he is indivisible. He's the only one worthy of worship. They understood the Ten Commandments, that you would have no other God but me. They could not, in good conscience, worship any other God but God. Two, this Monica, son of God, is revealed through our scripture to mean that it is God. It is in our in our in our terminology when we say son, we assume that it means you 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 come from something that you were born, right? And that that means you have a father that gave birth to you. In in the Jewish tradition and, and even in the Greek tradition, what you have is that it means that you share the same DNA as me. It means that you have the same substance as me. Let me show you if I can prove it. If you turn with me to uh, uh, John chapter five, turn to John chapter five verse seventeen. It's interesting that some verses we read and we sort of kind of may sometimes go past it and not see the weight of it. Look what happens here. And let me give you the context real quick. It's the Sabbath day. Jesus heals somebody and the Pharisees, as usual, are mad. They are not happy because on the Sabbath you shouldn't be doing anything, including healing somebody. Look at Jesus' response to them. And maybe a little more understanding is the Jewish people would say God, some would argue that God didn't work on Saturday either, that he had finished all his work. The question would come, then who's sustaining the universe right now? Then they would say, well, God works, but he doesn't lift anything above his head. So God works sort of like in between things. He's done the work of creation, and then somewhere in in between, he's still sustaining things, but it's not really work. Look what Jesus says. To them, this is blasphemy. Jesus answered and said, my father is working until now. Watch what he says next. And I am working also. What do you do there? What do you do? Didn't he just compare himself to the father? He goes further. He says here, this is why, listen, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So, so they were seeking all the more. In other words, we already want to kill you. Now we really want to kill you dead. There's a difference between somebody wanting to kill you and wanting to kill you dead. Like they want to make sure there's no chance for resurrection. They're going to go to your tomb, wait for you. If you breathe again, they'll kill you again. Like, they are trying to make sure that we understand, uh, John is telling us, they already wanted to kill him, but this here was the last straw for them. What was the last straw? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, the law, but he was also calling God his own father. Why is that a big deal? Next verse, or next, next sentence. Making himself equal with God. When he says that God is my father, it means I and God share the same DNA. We share the same substance. We are alike. Same substance. Equally God. Equally coexistent. Always been co-eternal. Always the same. And that's why in verse 33, those who were in the boat 
looked at him and say, truly you are the son of God. And because of that, they did what? They worshipped him. This is what we see. This is the whole point of this text. He does not display his power just so you can say he's a good Jesus. Or just so you can say he's nice. Or just so you can say he displays his power to show you that he is God. And when he does that, there is no room for fear. There's no room for doubt. There's no room for even worry. But if you do, there is grace. Peter shows us that. In so many ways, we're like Peter. For the believer, your faith in Christ, your destiny in Christ, sealed. You are saved. But in this lifetime, we will have trouble. And we will have moments when we, seek, when we sink and when we fall. And he's there immediately to pull us back. Cry to him. Call on him. He will be there. But maybe you're here and you're not a believer. Nothing I can offer you in the, in the form of assurance. There is no hope. Your doubt will increase with time. In fact, the very place you're headed is going to be filled of gnashing of the teeth and doubt and worry for all eternity. It doesn't have to be that way. There is hope in Christ. You, like Peter, can also cry, Lord, save me. Here's the promise of God. I will by no means cast him out. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not, not maybe, not possibly, not we'll weigh the weigh, weight of scales, not anything of that nature. But if you scream and call on me, I will save you. Promise of the Lord. So if you're here, maybe you're crying now. Maybe you will cry in the future. Maybe someone invited you. You might want to get with them and ask questions or whatever your doubts are. Best you have your doubts now than in hell. Ain't no answers there. Nothing but questions upon questions for all eternity. Why did I do this? Why didn't I accept the gift of God? Evangelistic sermons are not just good for non-Christians, but they remind us as Christians too to continue to be steadfast in our walk to God. Let's pray. Oh God, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ our Lord, the Father of all creation, and the Father of all of us, who have been recreated in Christ. We first thank you, God, for your eternal truth, mysteries that have been kept for ages, that have been revealed to those who are yours. We thank you, God, that you are still working even now, that your work of salvation continues to reverberate throughout all of history. We thank you, God, that we, like Peter, can have assurance that in the moments when we doubt, you are there immediately if we cry out to reach and pull us. Quite frankly, God, there have been moments when we've been in doubt where we've forgotten to cry out, but your spirit within us cries out and moans and groans for us with moans that cannot be uttered. So we are here, God, people who are set apart, being set apart, and will be set apart for your glory. In our sanctification, God, you have stretched us and you continue to stretch us. In the storms of life, you continue to remind us that we cannot depend on our own energy. Our strength at best is weak, at worst is a sin and abomination against you. In our weakness, you are perfected. Your power is perfected. 
We are strong when we are weak. We are at our strongest when we can declare that but for God go I. So we come to you, God, empty vessels, full of noise, full of empty noise, without any substance, without any weight to us, except your spirit be in us. We pray, God, that you have spoken to us in ways that we will soon find out. That through this week, God, this word that was preached today would reverberate in our souls, resound in our very spirits. We pray, God, if there's anyone among us who is doubting you for who you are as God, that you will reveal your divine power and presence and person to them. We pray, God, that you would make it crystal clear that if they choose to hold on to their doubt, it's not because you are not God, but it's because they choose to disobey and dishonor the truth that is before them. We pray that we would repent, God, of the ways in which we have sought other gods but you, where the storm of life has distracted us from you, where we have often taken our eyes off of you and placed them on ourselves or on our circumstances. In those moments where the very thing that we believe is hindering us from you is the very thing you use to bring us closer. We submit to you, God, all of our intentions, all of our hopes and aspirations, and ask, God, if they are not in your purpose, give us a distaste for them. Give us a heart that abhors and hates them. Let us walk away and withdraw onto you from them. We do ask, God, that you would provide opportunities for us to serve you better. Give us a heart and a willingness. We believe, Lord, but like the man, help our unbelief. We trust, Lord, but help our distrust. We trust and we stand firm on your truth, but help us in those moments when we sink. Steady our feet, Lord. Command us to come to you. And we know, like Peter, in your command, is power and authority to sustain us. Help us, Lord, as only you can. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.